You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha, and the Wolfram Language. In this first part in a two-part podcast, Stephen revisits the preface and first chapter of his magnum opus, A New Kind of Science, followed by the first sections of his blog post reflecting on a 15-year view of the work and its implications for modern machine learning, AI, and neural nets. Let's have a listen. Okay, so I'm going to be reading from my big book, A New Kind of Science, that I published in 2002. I'm going to start off reading the preface that I wrote uh, on January 15th, 2002. So here goes. Just over 20 years ago, and that was written in 2002, so that was referring to 1981, I made what at first seemed like a small discovery. A computer experiment of mine showed something I didn't expect. But the more I investigated, the more I realized that what I had seen was the beginning of a crack in the very foundations of existing science and a first clue towards a whole new kind of science. This book is the culmination of nearly 20 years of work that I've done to develop that new kind of science. I'd never expected it would take anything like as long, but I've discovered vastly more than I ever thought possible. And in fact, what I have now done touches almost every existing area of science and quite a bit besides. In the early years, I did as I had done before as a scientist and published accounts of my ongoing work in the scientific literature. But although what I wrote seemed to be very well received, I gradually came to realize that technical papers scattered across the journals of all sorts of fields could never successfully communicate the kind of major new intellectual structure that I seemed to be beginning to build. So I resolved just to keep working quietly until I'd finished and was ready to present everything in a single, coherent way. Fifteen years later, this book is the result. And with it, my hope is to share what I've done with as wide a range of scientists and non-scientists as possible. In modern times, it's been almost unheard of for genuinely new science to be presented for the first time in a book that can be read by non-scientists. For progress in science has mostly tended to take place in small steps that cannot reasonably be explained without relying on specialized technical knowledge of what's gone before. But to develop the new kind of science that I describe in this book, I've had no choice but to take several large steps at once. And in doing so, I have mostly ended up having to start from scratch with new ideas and new methods that ultimately depend very little on what has gone before. In some ways, it might have been easier for me to present what I've done in some kind of new technical formalism, but instead I've chosen to spend the effort to take things to the point where they are clear enough to be explained quite fully just in ordinary language and pictures. Unfortunately, however, this will no doubt mean that there are some, particularly from the existing sciences, who will at first assume that their existing technical knowledge must somehow already cover whatever is in this book. And a few, I fear, will stop at that point and choose to learn no more. But many, I hope, will at least look at the book long enough to begin to be surprised by what it actually says. At first, they will probably think the parts of it cannot possibly be correct, for they seem to be so at odds with existing science. And indeed, if I myself were just to pick up this book today without having spent the past 20 years thinking about its contents, I have little doubt that I too would not believe much of many of the things it says. But the computer experiments on which the science in the book is ultimately based are easy to check on any modern computer, and almost all the arguments in the book, while often not conceptually simple, require no specialized scientific or other knowledge to follow. Yet it has certainly taken me years to come to terms with the conclusions I've reached, and while I hope that all the effort I put into the presentation in this book will make it easier for others, I do not expect it to be a quick process. 
For to absorb in any real way what the book has to say requires a fairly major shift in intuition and thinking. But the most important first step, I believe, is just to recognize what is involved. For though there are connections of all sorts, this book is first and foremost about a fundamentally new intellectual structure that needs to be understood in its own terms and cannot reasonably be fit into any existing framework. It's been a great challenge for me to capture the things I've discovered over the past 20 years in a book of manageable size, and to do so I've often ended up compressing into a page or even a paragraph the essence of what a chapter or even a book could have been written about. In the quarter million or so words of the main text, my emphasis is on communicating the core of my ideas and discoveries, as well as indicating a little of how I came to them. The last 300 or so pages of the book, themselves another quarter million or so words, supplement the main text with many historical and technical notes, and also summarize more discoveries. Throughout the book, my primary concern is with basic science and fundamental issues. But building on the foundations in the book, there are a vast array of applications, both conceptual and practical, that can now be developed. No doubt some will come quickly, but most will probably take decades to emerge. Yet in time, I expect that the ideas of this book will come to pervade not only science and technology, but also many areas of general thinking. And with this, its methods will eventually become a standard part of education, much as mathematics is today. And in the end, most of what now seems surprising and remarkable in the book will come to seem familiar and commonplace. But for me, what has always been most important is the actual process of discovery. For I know of nothing as profoundly exciting as to glimpse for the first time some new and basic truth. And now that I've finished building the intellectual structure that I describe in this book, it is my hope that those who read these words can share in the excitement that I have had in making the discoveries that were involved. This is the beginning of the first chapter, which is entitled The Foundations for a New Kind of Science. Three centuries ago, science was transformed by the dramatic new idea that rules based on mathematical equations could be used to describe the natural world. My purpose in this book is to initiate another such transformation and to introduce a new kind of science that is based on the much more general types of rules that can be embodied in simple computer programs. It's taken me the better part of 20 years to build the intellectual structure that is needed, but I have been amazed by its results. For what I have found is that with the new kind of science I have developed, it suddenly becomes possible to make progress on a remarkable range of fundamental issues that have never successfully been addressed by any of the existing sciences before. If theoretical science is to be possible at all, then at some level the systems it studies must follow definite rules. Yet in the past, throughout the exact sciences, it's usually been assumed that these rules must be ones based on traditional mathematics. But the crucial realization that led me to develop the new kind of science in this book is that there is in fact no reason to think that systems like those we see in nature should follow only such traditional mathematical rules. Earlier in history, it might have been difficult to imagine what more general types of rules could be like. But today we are surrounded by computers whose programs in effect implement a huge variety of rules. The programs we use in practice are mostly based on extremely complicated rules specifically designed to perform particular tasks. But a program can in principle follow essentially any definite set of rules. And at the core of the new kind of science that I describe in this book are discoveries I've made about programs with some of the very simplest rules that are possible. One might have thought, as I at first certainly did, 
that if the rules for a program were simple, then this would mean that its behavior must also be correspondingly simple. For our everyday experience in building things tends to give us the intuition that creating complexity is somehow difficult and requires rules or plans that are themselves complex. But the pivotal discovery that I made some 18 years ago is that in the world of programs, such intuition is not even close to correct. I did what is, in a sense, one of the most elementary imaginable computer experiments. I took a sequence of simple programs and then systematically ran them to see how they behaved. And what I found, to my great surprise, was that despite the simplicity of their rules, the behavior of the program was often far from simple. Indeed, even some of the very simplest programs that I looked at had behavior that was as complex as anything I had ever seen. It took me more than a decade to come to terms with this result and to realize just how fundamental and far-reaching its consequences are. In retrospect, there's no reason the result couldn't have been found centuries ago, but increasingly I have come to view it as one of the more important single discoveries in the whole history of theoretical science. For in addition to opening up vast new domains of exploration, it implies a radical rethinking of how processes in nature and elsewhere work. Perhaps immediately most dramatic is that it yields a resolution to what has long been considered the single greatest mystery of the natural world, what secret it is that allows nature seemingly so effortlessly to produce so much that appears to us so complex. It could have been, after all, that in the natural world we will mostly see forms like squares and circles that we consider simple. But in fact, one of the most striking features of the natural world is that across a vast range of physical, biological, and other systems, we're continually confronted with what seems to be immense complexity. And indeed, throughout most of history, it has been taken almost for granted that such complexity being so vastly greater than in the works of humans could only be the work of a supernatural being. But my discovery that many very simple programs produce great complexity immediately suggests a rather different explanation. For all it takes is that systems in nature operate like typical programs, and then it follows that their behavior will often be complex. And the reason that such complexity is not usually seen in human artifacts is just that in building these, we tend in effect to use programs that are specially chosen to give only behavior simple enough for us to be able to see that it will achieve the purposes we want. One might have thought that with all their successes over the past few centuries, the existing sciences would long ago have managed to address the issue of complexity. But in fact, they have not. And indeed, for the most part, they have specifically defined their scope in order to avoid direct contact with it. For while their basic idea of describing behavior in terms of mathematical equations works well in cases like planetary motion, where the behavior is fairly simple, it almost inevitably fails whenever the behavior is more complex. And more or less the same is true of descriptions based on ideas like natural selection and biology. But by thinking in terms of programs, the new kind of science that I develop in this book is for the first time able to make meaningful statements about even immensely complex behavior. In the existing sciences, much of the emphasis of the past century or so has been on breaking systems down to find their underlying parts, then trying to analyze these parts in as much detail as possible. And particularly in physics, this approach has been sufficiently successful that the basic components of everyday systems are by now completely known. But just how these components act together to produce even some of the most obvious features of the overall behavior we see has in the past remained an almost complete mystery. Within the framework of the new kind of science that I develop in this book, however, it is finally possible to address such a question. 
From the tradition of the existing sciences, one might expect that its answer would depend on all sorts of details and be quite different for different types of physical, biological, and other systems. But in the world of simple programs, I've discovered that the same basic forms of behavior occur over and over again, almost independent of underlying details. And what this suggests is that there are quite universal principles that determine overall behavior and that can be expected to apply not only to simple programs, but also to systems throughout the natural world and elsewhere. In the existing sciences, whenever a phenomenon is encountered that seems complex, it's taken almost for granted that the phenomenon must be the result of some underlying mechanism that is itself complex. But my discovery that simple programs can produce great complexity makes it clear that this is not in fact correct. And indeed, in the later parts of this book, I will show that even remarkably simple programs seem to capture the essential mechanisms responsible for all sorts of important phenomena that in the past have always seemed far too complex to allow any simple explanation. It is not uncommon in the history of science that new ways of thinking are what finally allow long-standing issues to be addressed. But I have been amazed at just how many of the issues central to the foundations of the existing sciences I have been able to address by using the idea of thinking in terms of simple programs. For more than a century, for example, there's been confusion about how thermodynamic behavior arises in physics. Yet from my discoveries about simple programs, I've developed a quite straightforward explanation. And in biology, my discoveries provide for the first time an explicit way to understand just how it is that so many organisms exhibit such great complexity. Indeed, I have even increasing evidence that thinking in terms of simple programs will make it possible to construct a single, truly fundamental theory of physics from which space, time, quantum mechanics, and all the other known features of our universe will emerge. When mathematics was introduced into science, it provided for the first time an abstract framework in which scientific conclusions could be drawn without direct reference to physical reality. Yet, despite all its development over the past few thousand years, mathematics itself has continued to concentrate only on rather specific types of abstract systems, most often ones somehow derived from arithmetic or geometry. But the new kind of science that I describe in this book introduces what are, in a sense, much more general abstract systems based on rules of essentially any type whatsoever. One might have thought that such systems would be too diverse for meaningful general statements to be made about them. But the crucial idea that has allowed me to build a unified framework for the new kind of science I describe in this book is that just as the rules for any system can be viewed as corresponding to a program, so also its behavior can be viewed as corresponding to a computation. Traditional intuition might suggest that to do more sophisticated computations it would always require more sophisticated underlying rules. But what launched the whole computer revolution is the remarkable fact that universal systems with fixed underlying rules can be built that can in effect perform any possible computation. The threshold for such universality has however generally been assumed to be high and to be reached only by elaborate and special systems like typical electronic computers. But one of the surprising discoveries in this book is that in fact there are systems whose rules are simple enough to describe in just one sentence that are nevertheless universal. And this immediately suggests that the phenomenon of universality is vastly more common and important in both abstract systems and nature than has ever been imagined before. But on the basis of many discoveries, I have been led to a still more sweeping conclusion summarized in what I call the principle of computational equivalence, that whenever one sees behavior that is not obviously simple in essentially any system, it can be thought of as corresponding to a computation of equivalent sophistication. 
and this one very basic principle has a quite unprecedented array of implications for science and scientific thinking. For a start, it immediately gives a fundamental explanation for why simple programs can show behavior that seems to us complex. For like other processes, our own processes of perception and analysis can be thought of as computations. But though we might have imagined that such computations would always be vastly more sophisticated than those performed by simple programs, the principle of computational equivalence implies that they are not. And it is this equivalence between us as observers and the systems that we observe that makes the behavior of such systems seem to us complex. One can always in principle find out how a particular system will behave just by running experiment and watching what happens. But the great historical successes of theoretical science have typically revolved around finding mathematical formulas that instead directly allow one to predict the outcome. Yet in effect, this relies on being able to shortcut the computational work that the system itself performs. And the principle of computational equivalence now implies that this will normally be possible only for rather special systems with simple behavior. For other systems will tend to perform computations that are just as sophisticated as those we can do even with all our mathematics and computers. And this means that such systems are computationally irreducible, so that in effect the only way to find their behavior is to trace each of their steps, spending about as much computational effort as the systems themselves. So this implies that there is in a sense a fundamental limitation to theoretical science. But it also shows that there's something irreducible that can be achieved by the passage of time, and it leads to an explanation of how we as humans even though we may follow definite underlying rules, can still in a meaningful way show free will. One feature of many of the most important advances in science throughout history is that they show new ways in which we as humans are not special. And at some level, the principle of computational equivalence does this as well, for it implies that when it comes to computation or intelligence, we are in the end no more sophisticated than all sorts of simple programs and all sorts of systems in nature. But from the principle of computational equivalence, there also emerges a new kind of unity. For across a vast range of systems, from simple programs to brains to our whole universe, the principle implies that there is a basic equivalence that makes the same fundamental phenomena occur and allows the same basic scientific ideas and methods to be used. And it is this that is ultimately responsible for the great power of the new kind of science that I describe in this book. Okay, I'm going to be reading an essay that I wrote called A New Kind of Science, A 15-Year View. This was written on May 14th, 2017, in celebration of the 15th anniversary of my book, A New Kind of Science, that was published in 2002. It's now 15 years since I published my book, A New Kind of Science, more than 25 since I started writing it, and more than 35 since I started working towards it. But with every passing year, I feel I understand more about what the book is really about and why it's important. I wrote the book, as its title suggests, to contribute to the progress of science. But as the years have gone by, I've realized that the core of what's in the book actually goes far beyond science, into many areas that will be increasingly important in defining our whole future. So, viewed from a distance of 15 years, what is the book really about? At its core, it's about something profoundly abstract, the theory of all possible theories, or the universe of all possible universes. But for me, one of the achievements of the book is the realization that one can explore such fundamental things concretely by doing actual experiments in the computational universe of possible programs. 
And in the end, the book is full of what might at first seem like quite alien pictures made just by running very simple such programs. Back in 1980, when I made my living as a theoretical physicist, if you'd asked me what I thought simple programs would do, I expect I would have just said, not much. I'd been very interested in the kind of complexity one sees in nature, but I thought, like a typical reductionistic scientist, that the key to understanding it must lie in figuring out detailed features of the underlying component parts. In retrospect, I consider it incredibly lucky that all those years ago, I happened to have the right interests and the right skills to actually try what is in a sense the most basic experiment in the computational universe, to systematically take a sequence of the simplest programs and run them. I could tell as soon as I did it that there were interesting things going on, but it took a couple more years before I began to really appreciate the force of what I'd seen. For me, it all started with one picture, and I have this thing printed out on a line printer with a bunch of stars making a kind of uh, uh, triangular pattern. And I show in, in modern form the same thing. I call it Rule 30. It's my all-time favorite discovery, and today I carry it around everywhere on my business cards. What is it? It's one of the simplest programs one can imagine. It operates on rows of black and white cells, starting from a single black cell, then repeatedly applies particular rules. And the crucial point is that even though those rules are by any measure extremely simple, the pattern that emerges is not. I can describe the rules. They take a cell and its two neighbors. Each cell can be either black or white. And they say what the color of the cell in the middle will be on the next step, based on the color of that cell and its neighbors on the step before. So if it's three blacks in a row, black, black, white, black, white, black, in all three of those cases, the cell in the middle is white. If all three cells are white, the cell in the middle is white. And in the other cases, the cell in the middle is going to be black. So if it's black, white, 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 black, black, white, black, white, or white, white, black, then in those cases, the cell in the middle is going to be black on the next step. So you can summarize that with a little icon that's a tiny thing that specifies the rule, the program that we're dealing with. So the crucial point is that even though that rule is very simple, the pattern of behavior that you get by running that rule and applying it many, many times is not at all simple. So I go on to say, this is a crucial and utterly unexpected feature of the computational universe, that even among the very simplest programs, it's easy to get immensely complex behavior. It took me a solid decade to understand just how broad this phenomenon is. It doesn't just happen in programs, so-called cellular automata, like Rule 30. It basically shows up whenever you start enumerating possible rules or possible programs whose behavior isn't obviously trivial. Similar phenomena had actually been seen for centuries in things like the digits of pi and the distribution of primes, but they were basically just viewed as curiosities and not as signs of something profoundly important. It's been nearly 35 years since I first saw what happens in Rule 30, and with every passing year I feel I come to understand more clearly and deeply what its significance is. Four centuries ago it was the discovery of the moons of Jupiter and their regularities that sowed the seeds for modern exact science and for the modern scientific approach to thinking. Could my little Rule 30 now be the seed for another such intellectual revolution and a new way of thinking about everything? In some ways, I might personally prefer not to take responsibility for shepherding such ideas. Paradigm shifts are hard and thankless work. 
And certainly for years, I have just quietly used such ideas to develop technology and my own thinking. But as computation and AI become increasingly central to our world, I think it's important that the implications of what's out there in the computational universe be more widely understood. So let's talk about implications of the computational universe. Here's the way I see it today. From observing the moons of Jupiter, we came away with the idea that if looked at right, the universe is an ordered and regular place that we can ultimately understand. But now, in exploring the computational universe, we quickly come upon things like Rule 30, where even the simplest rules seem to lead to irreducibly complex behavior. One of the big ideas of a new kind of science is what I call the principle of computational equivalence. The first step is to think of every process, whether it's happening with black and white squares or in physics or inside our brains, as a computation that somehow transforms input to output. What the principle of computational equivalence says is that above an extremely low threshold, all processes correspond to computations of equivalent sophistication. It might not be true. It might be that something like Rule 30 corresponds to a fundamentally simpler computation than the fluid dynamics of a hurricane or the processes in my brain as I write this. But what the principle of computational equivalence says is that in fact all these things are computationally equivalent. It's a very important statement with many deep implications. For one thing, it implies what I call computational irreducibility. If something like Rule 30 is doing a computation just as sophisticated as our brains or our mathematics, there's no way we can outrun it. To figure out what it will do, we have to do an irreducible amount of computation, effectively tracing each of its steps. The mathematical tradition in exact science has emphasized the idea of predicting the behavior of systems by doing things like solving mathematical equations. But what computational irreducibility implies is that out in the computational universe, that often won't work. And instead, the only way forward is just to explicitly run a computation to simulate the behavior of the system. One of the things I did in a new kind of science was to show how simple programs can serve as models for the essential features of all sorts of physical, biological, and other systems. Back when the book appeared, some people were skeptical about this. And indeed, at that time, there was a 300-year unbroken tradition that serious models in science should be based on mathematical equations. But in the past 15 years, something remarkable has happened. For now, when new models are created, whether of animal patterns or web browsing behavior, they are overwhelmingly more often based on programs than on mathematical equations. Year by year, it's been a slow, almost silent process. But by this point, it's a dramatic shift. Three centuries ago, pure philosophical reasoning was supplanted by mathematical equations. Now, in these few short years, equations have been largely supplanted by programs. For now, it's mostly been something practical and pragmatic. The models work better and are more useful. But when it comes to understanding the foundations of what's going on, one's led not to things like mathematical theorems and calculus, but instead to ideas like the principle of computational equivalence. Traditional mathematics-based ways of thinking have made concepts like force and momentum ubiquitous in the way we talk about the world. But now, as we think in fundamentally computational terms, we have to start talking in terms of concepts like undecidability and computational irreducibility. Will some type of tumor always stop growing in some particular model? It might be undecidable. Is there a way to work out how a weather system will develop? It might be computationally irreducible. 
These concepts are pretty important when it comes to understanding not only what can and cannot be modelled, but also what can and cannot be controlled in the world. Computational irreducibility in economics is going to limit what can be globally controlled. Computational irreducibility in biology is going to limit how generally effective therapies can be and make highly personalized medicine a fundamental necessity. And through ideas like the principle of computational equivalence, we can start to discuss just what it is that allows nature, seemingly so effortlessly, to generate so much that seems to us so complex. Or how even deterministic underlying rules can lead to computationally irreducible behavior that, for all practical purposes, can seem to show free will. So let's talk about mining the computational universe. A central lesson of a new kind of science is that there's lots of incredible richness out there in the computational universe. And one reason that's important is that it means that there's a lot of incredible stuff out there for us to mine and harness for our purposes. Want to automatically make an interesting custom piece of art? Just start looking at simple programs and automatically pick out one you like, as in our Wolf & Tones music site from a decade ago. Want to find an optimal algorithm for something? Just search enough programs out there and you'll find one. We've normally been used to creating things by building them up step by step with human effort, progressively creating architectural plans or engineering drawings or lines of code. But the discovery that there's so much richness so easily accessible in the computational universe suggests a different approach. Don't try building anything. Just define what you want and then search for it in the computational universe. Sometimes it's really easy to find. Like, let's say you want to generate apparent randomness. Well, then just enumerate cellular automata, as I did in 1984, and very quickly you come upon Rule 30, which turns out to be one of the very best-known generators of apparent randomness, looking down, for example, the center column of cell values. In other situations, you might have to search 100,000 cases, as I did in finding the simplest axiom system for logic or the simplest universal Turing machine, or you might have to search millions or even trillions of cases. But in the past 25 years, we've had incredible success in just discovering algorithms out there in the computational universe, and we rely on many of them in implementing the Wolfram language. At some level, it's quite sobering. One finds some tiny program out in the computational universe. One can tell it does what one wants. But when one looks at what it's doing, one doesn't have any real idea how it works. Maybe one can analyze some part and be struck by how clever it is. But there just isn't a way for us to understand the whole thing. It's not something familiar from our usual patterns of thinking. Of course, we've often had similar experiences before when we use things from nature. We may notice that some particular substance is a useful drug or a general chemical catalyst, but we may have no idea why. But in doing engineering and in most of our modern efforts to build technology, the great emphasis has instead been on constructing things whose design and operation we can readily understand. In the past, we might have thought that was enough. But what our explorations of the computational universe show is that it's not. Selecting only things whose operation we can readily understand misses most of the immense power and richness that's out there in the computational universe. So what will the world look like when more of what we have is mined from the computational universe? Today, the environment we build for ourselves is dominated by things like simple shapes and repetitive processes. But the more we use what's out there in the computational universe, the less regular things will look. Sometimes they may look a bit organic, or like what we see in nature, since after all, nature follows similar kinds of rules. But sometimes they may look quite random, until perhaps suddenly and incomprehensibly they achieve something we recognize. 
For several millennia, we as a civilization have been on a path to understand more about what happens in our world, whether by using science to decode nature or by creating our own environment through technology. But to use more of the richness of the computational universe, we must at least to some extent forsake this path. In the past, we somehow counted on the idea that between our brains and the tools we could create, we would always have fundamentally greater computational power than the things around us, and as a result, we would always be able to, quote, understand them. But what the principle of computational equivalence says is that this isn't true. Out in the computational universe, there are lots of things just as powerful as our brains or the tools we build, and as soon as we start using those things, we lose the edge we thought we had. Today, we still imagine we can identify discrete bugs in programs, but most of what's powerful out there in the computational universe is rife with computational irreducibility, so the only real way to see what it does is just to run it and watch what happens. We ourselves, as biological systems, are a great example of computation happening at a molecular scale, and we are no doubt rife with computational irreducibility, which is, at some fundamental level, why medicine is hard. I suppose it's a trade-off. We could limit our technology to consist only of things whose operation we understand, but then we would miss all that richness that's out there in the computational universe, and we wouldn't even be able to match the achievements of our own biology in the technology we create. You know, there's a common pattern I've noticed with intellectual fields. They go for decades and perhaps centuries with only incremental growth, and then suddenly, usually as a result of a methodological advance, there's a burst of hypergrowth for perhaps five years, in which important new results arrive almost every week. I was fortunate enough that my own very first field, particle physics, was in its period of hypergrowth right when I was involved in the late 1970s. And for myself, the 1990s felt like a kind of personal period of hypergrowth for what became a new kind of science, and indeed that's why I couldn't pull myself away from it for more than a decade. But today, the obvious field in hypergrowth is machine learning, or more specifically, neural nets. It's funny for me to see this. I actually worked on neural nets back in 1981 before I started on cellular automata and several years before I found Rule 30. But I never managed to get neural nets to do anything very interesting, and actually I found them too messy and complicated for the fundamental questions I was concerned with. And so I simplified them and wound up with cellular automata. I was also inspired by things like the Ising model and statistical physics and so on. At the outset, I thought I might have simplified too far and that my little cellular automata would never do anything interesting. But then I found things like Rule 30, and I've been trying to understand its implications ever since. In building Mathematica in the Wolfram language, I'd always kept track of neural nets, and occasionally we'd use them in some small way for some algorithm or another. But about five years ago, I suddenly started hearing amazing things, that somehow the idea of training neural nets to do sophisticated things was actually working. At first, I wasn't sure, but then we started building neural net capabilities in the Wolfram language, and finally, a couple of years ago, we released our Image Identify website, and now we've got our whole symbolic neural net system. And yes, I'm impressed. There are lots of tasks that have traditionally been viewed as the unique domain of humans, but which we can now routinely do by computer. But what's actually going on in a neural net? It's not really to do with the brain. That was just the inspiration. Though in reality, the brain probably works more or less the same way. A neural net is really a sequence of functions that operate on arrays of numbers, with each function typically taking quite a few inputs from around the array. It's not so different from a cellular automaton, except that in a cellular automaton, one's usually dealing, say, with just zeros and ones, not arbitrary numbers like 0.735. 
And instead of taking inputs from all over the place, in a cellular automaton, each step takes inputs only from a very well-defined local region. Now, to be fair, it's pretty common to study convolutional neural nets in which the patterns of inputs are very regular, just like in a cellular automaton. And it's becoming clear that having precise, say, 32-bit numbers isn't critical to the operation of neural nets. One can probably make do with just a few bits. But a big feature of neural nets is that we know how to make them learn. In particular, they have enough features from traditional mathematics, like involving continuous numbers, that techniques like calculus can be applied to provide strategies to make them incrementally change their parameters to fit their behavior to whatever training examples they're given. It's far from obvious how much computational effort or how many training examples will be needed, but the breakthrough of about five years ago was the discovery that for many important practical problems, what's available with modern GPUs and modern web-collected training sets can be enough. Pretty much nobody ends up explicitly setting or engineering the parameters in a neural net. Instead, what happens is that they're found automatically. But unlike with simple programs like cellular automata, where one's typically enumerating all possibilities, in current neural nets, there's an incremental process, essentially based on calculus, that manages to progressively improve the net, a little like the way biological evolution progressively improves the fitness of an organism. It's plenty remarkable what comes out from training a neural net in this way, and it's plenty difficult to understand how the neural net does what it does. But in some sense, the neural net isn't venturing too far across the computational universe. It's always basically keeping the same basic computational structure and just changing its behavior by changing parameters. But to me, the success of today's neural nets is a spectacular endorsement of the power of the computational universe and another validation of the ideas in a new kind of science because it shows that out in the computational universe, away from the constraints of explicitly building systems whose detailed behavior one can foresee, there are immediately all sorts of rich and useful things to be found. So, is there a way to bring the full power of the computational universe and the ideas of a new kind of science to the kinds of things one does with neural nets? I suspect so. And in fact, as the details become clear, I wouldn't be surprised if exploration of the computational universe saw its own period of hypergrowth, a mining boom of perhaps unprecedented proportions. In current work on neural nets, there's a definite trade-off one sees. The more what's going on inside the neural net is like a simple mathematical function with essentially arithmetic parameters, the easier it is to use ideas from calculus to train the network. But the more what's going on is like a discrete program or like a computation whose whole structure can change, the more difficult it is to train the network. It's worth remembering, though, that the networks we're routinely training now would have looked utterly impractical to train only a few years ago. It's effectively just all those quadrillions of GPU operations that we can throw at the problem that makes training feasible. And I won't be surprised if even quite pedestrian, say, local exhaustive search techniques will fairly soon let one do significant training, even in cases where no incremental numerical approach is possible. And perhaps even it will be possible to invent some major generalizations of things like calculus that will operate in the full computational universe. I actually have some suspicions based on thinking about generalizing basic notions of geometry to cover things like cellular automaton rule spaces. But what would this let one do? Likely it would let one find considerably simpler systems that could achieve particular computational goals. And maybe that would bring within reach some qualitatively new level of operations, perhaps beyond what we're used to being possible even with things like brains. There's a funny thing that's going on with modeling these days. As neural nets become more successful, one begins to wonder, why bother to simulate what's going on inside a system when one can just make a black box model of its output using a neural net? Well, if we manage to get machine learning 
to reach deeper into the computational universe, we won't have as much of this trade-off anymore because we'll be able to learn models of the mechanism as well as the output. I'm pretty sure that bringing the full computational universe into the purview of machine learning will have spectacular consequences, but it's worth realizing that computational universality and the principle of computational equivalence make it less a matter of principle because they imply that even neural nets of the kinds we have now are universal and are capable of emulating anything any other system can do. In fact, this universality result was essentially what launched the whole modern idea of neural nets back in 1943. And as a practical matter, the fact that current neural net primitives are being built into hardware and so on will make them a desirable foundation for actual technology systems, even if they're far from optimal. But my guess is, that there are tasks where for the foreseeable future access to the full computational universe will be necessary to make them even vaguely practical. So what will it take to make artificial intelligence? As a kid I was very interested in figuring out how to make a computer know things and be able to answer questions from what it knew. And when I studied neural nets in 1981 it was partly in the context of trying to understand how to build such a system. As it happens I had just developed SMP which was a forerunner of Mathematica and ultimately the Wolfram language and which was very much based on symbolic pattern matching. Kind of, if you see this, transform it to that. At the time, though, I imagined that artificial intelligence was somehow a higher level of computation, and I didn't know how to achieve it. I returned to the problem every so often and kept putting it off. But then when I was working on a new kind of science, it struck me, if I'm to take the principle of computational equivalence seriously, then there can't be any fundamentally higher level of computation so AI must be achievable just with the standard ideas of computation that I already know. And it was this realization that got me started building Wolfram Alpha. And yes, what I found is that lots of those very AI-oriented things, like natural language understanding, could be done just with ordinary computation without any magic new AI invention. Now, to be fair, part of what was happening was that we were using ideas and methods from a new kind of science. We weren't just engineering everything, we were often searching the computational universe for rules and algorithms to use. So what about general AI? Well, I think at this point that with the tools and understanding we have, we're in a good position to automate essentially anything we can define. But definition is a more difficult and central issue than we might imagine. The way I see things at this point is that there's a lot of computation even near at hand in the computational universe, and it's powerful computation, as powerful as anything that happens in our brains. But we don't recognize it as intelligence unless it's aligned with our human goals and purposes. Ever since I was writing A New Kind of Science, I've been fond of quoting the aphorism, the weather has a mind of its own. It sounds so animistic and pre-scientific. But what the principle of computational equivalence says is that actually, according to the most modern science, it's true. The fluid dynamics of the weather is the same in its computational sophistication as the electrical processes that go on in our brains. But is it intelligent? When I talk to people about a new kind of science and about AI, I'll often get asked when I think we'll achieve consciousness in a machine. Life, intelligence, consciousness. They're all concepts that we have a specific example of here on Earth. But what are they in general? All life on Earth shares RNA and the structure of cell membranes. But surely that's just because all life we know is part of one connected thread of history. It's not that such details are fundamental to the very concept of life. And so it is with intelligence. We have only one example we're sure of, us humans. We're not even sure about animals. But human intelligence, as we experience it, is deeply entangled with human civilization, human culture, and ultimately also human physiology. 
even though none of these details are presumably relevant in the abstract definition of intelligence. We might think about extraterrestrial intelligence, but what the principle of computational equivalence implies is that actually there's, quotes, alien intelligence all around us, but somehow it's just not quite aligned with human intelligence. We might look at Rule 30, for example, and be able to see that it's doing sophisticated computation, just like our brains, but somehow it just doesn't seem to have any point to what it's doing. We imagine that in doing the things we humans do, we operate with certain goals or purposes. But Rule 30, for example, just seems to be doing what it's doing, just following some definite rule. In the end, though, one realizes we're not so very different. After all, there are definite laws of nature that govern our brains. So anything we do is at some level just playing out those laws. Any process can actually be described either in terms of mechanism, the stone is moving according to Newton's laws, or in terms of goals, the stone is moving so as to minimize potential energy. The description in terms of mechanism is usually what's most useful in connecting with science, but the description in terms of goals is usually what's most useful in connecting with human intelligence. And this is crucial in thinking about AI. We know we can have computational systems whose operations are as sophisticated as anything, but can we get them to do things that are aligned with human goals and purposes? In a sense, this is what I now view as the key problem of AI. It's not about achieving underlying computational sophistication, but instead it's about communicating what we want from this computation. I've spent much of my life as a computer language designer, most importantly creating what is now the Wolfram language. I'd always seen my role as a language designer being to imagine the possible computations people might want to do, then, like a reductionist scientist, trying to drill down to find good primitives from which all these computations could be built up. But somehow, from a new kind of science and from thinking about AI, I've come to think about it a little differently. Now what I more see myself as doing is making a bridge between our patterns of human thinking and what the computational universe is capable of. There are all sorts of amazing things that can in principle be done by computation, but what the language does is to provide a way for us humans to express what we want done or want to achieve and then to get this actually executed as automatically as possible. Language design has to start from what we know and are familiar with. In the Wolfram language, we name the built-in primitives with English words, leveraging the meanings that those words have acquired. But the Wolfram language is not like natural language. It's something more structured and more powerful. It's based on the words and concepts that we're familiar with through the shared corpus of human knowledge, but it gives us a way to build up arbitrarily sophisticated programs that in effect express arbitrarily complex goals. Yes, the computational universe is capable of remarkable things, but they're not necessarily things that we humans can describe or relate to. But in building Wolfram language, my goal is to do the best I can in capturing everything we humans want and being able to express it in executable computational terms. When we look at the computational universe, it's hard not to be struck by the limitations of what we know how to describe or think about. Modern neural nets provide an interesting example. For the image identify function of the Wolfram language, we've trained a neural net to identify thousands of kinds of things in the world. And to cater to our human purposes, what the network ultimately does is to describe what it sees in terms of concepts that we can name with words, tables, chairs, elephants, and so on. But internally, what the network is doing is to identify a series of features of any object in the world. Is it green? Is it round? And so on. And what happens is the neural net is trained is that it identifies features it finds useful for distinguishing different kinds of things in the world. But the point is that almost none of these features are ones to which we happen to have assigned words in human language. 
out in the computational universe, it's possible to find what may be incredibly useful ways to describe things, but they're alien to us humans. They're not something we know how to express based on the corpus of knowledge our civilization has developed. Now, of course, new concepts are being added to the corpus of human knowledge all the time. Back a century ago, if someone saw a nested pattern, they wouldn't have any way to describe it. But now we just say it's a fractal. But the problem is that in the computational universe, there's an infinite collection of potentially useful concepts with which we can never hope to ultimately keep up. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. Tune into part two, where Stephen examines the implications of a new kind of science for mathematics, controlling artificial intelligence, and the future of mining the computational universe. You can read more about a new kind of science at wolframscience.com. And for more information on Stephen's other publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.